Hello everybody, this is Jeremy, and today on the podcast we are going to be playing for you part one of a two-part lecture that I gave at a church in Kansas regarding how to respond to Mormon objections to Christianity. You're going to want to listen to both parts one and two. Part one, we just lay out the issues, or I rather, just lay out the issues uh, that are common to all Mormons, generally speaking, when they object to Christianity. And in part two, you will hear how we should respond to those objections from a biblical worldview. So you want to hear both parts, part one and two. So I hope that's helpful, and I hope you are able to learn some things about Mormonism that you've never known before. That would be really neat. So uh, let us know what you think. Leave us a review or a rating somewhere. That would be helpful. You can also send us a note at show at dotheology.com, or you could find us on social media, Twitter and Facebook, at dotheology. Find us uh, on there and connect with us. That'd be great. Hope this is a blessing to you. Have a great day. This evening, uh, we're going to hear part one of Jeremy's presentation on talking to Latter-day Saints. And uh, so I I think you're really going to be fascinated with uh, what Jeremy's going to have to share with us tonight. And I think we'll discover some, uh, some thoughts, some principles that will be very applicable for us in any gospel conversation, uh, whether we find ourselves talking to an LDS person or someone else. Uh, So without further ado, I'm going to invite Jeremy to come up and share with us this evening. All right. Well, uh, glad to be with you this evening and glad to be here in Montezuma, my first time in this place. I uh, had asked him if he knew what Montezuma meant, if there was a translation for that, and I did a little Googling. And apparently it's named after some old Aztec ruler whose name means angry like a lord. So if you guys want to take that and make it the new church motto, uh, I think that would be (laughs) real uh, seeker sensitive for you guys to do that. But uh, yeah, it's great to be back. And and you know, in the days ahead, churches that are like-minded like ours, uh, whether we're nearby or far apart geographically, we're going to need each other in the days ahead, uh, more so perhaps than we felt in the past. And with technology, we can really be connected. And it's good to see you guys and meet you. And I hope we can connect online through Facebook or something and stay in touch because uh, we don't know what the future holds, do we? Uh, And what this country will go through in the coming years. But uh, we can encourage one another even as we see the day approaching. Uh, So let's Let's stay friends. Let's not just be friends for a weekend. Let's stay friends. And I love the, the theme of the conference, Jesus is Enough. That is a phrase that we use a lot in Utah, the band Adams Road. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that band or the name Lynn Wilder, who wrote the book Unveiling Grace. Uh, her children, uh, particularly two of her sons, started the band Adams Road. It's a ex-Mormon ministry where they have a Christian band and they tour the country and they tell their testimony and they use this phrase, Jesus is enough. Uh, and in a Mormon context, that, that means a lot of things because the doctrine of Mormonism, just like the doctrine of every other anti-Christian cult, is Jesus plus something. And when we say Jesus is enough to those types of people, we are saying he really is sufficient 
for salvation. And uh, that's a, a really important thing uh, that we need to communicate to those people. And like uh, Tim said, I'm getting ready to give you part one of a two-part series here on uh, talking to Latter-day Saints. If you don't come in the morning, you won't find out how to talk to Latter-day Saints. Uh, tonight, I'm just giving you the 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 circumstances that you need to know before you enter that conversation. And tomorrow morning, we'll talk about what to say and where you can turn to in Scripture to address some of those things. So come back tomorrow, okay? Uh, so you can hear that. Uh, but before we get started, why don't I say a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, your patience, your grace and mercy. We thank you for the love you have shown us, each, each and every one of us, the grace that has been given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I thank you so much that we're able to discuss these things from a shared biblical worldview. I ask that tonight as we uh, dive into the issues and start looking at um, what the Mormon worldview is like, that you would give us uh, wisdom, you would increase our understanding, uh, because this is all about your glory, and this is all about souls that are at stake. So give us a sensitivity to those things and, and give us a passion for reaching the lost. Uh, at the end of the day, there really are only two worldviews. Uh, there are those who know Jesus and there are those who do not. And uh, we are to have a passion as your people. We are to have a passion to reach them as your ambassadors, as instruments in your hand. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would equip us together tonight and encourage, uh, encourage our hearts, build us up in our most holy faith. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I understand that Tim went through a series on Mormonism in March. A lot has happened since March. <laughs> We've had a few current events uh, that have popped up in the, the month since March, and I don't know how much you have retained or remembered. So I'm just going to give you some basic info about uh, Mormonism, starting with uh, just answering the question, giving you a, a concise definition, what is a Latter-day Saint? And I should express at the beginning that there's been a big PR push from the Mormon church to be called Latter-day Saints and not called Mormons anymore. Uh, Mormons had embraced that term for a long time. In fact, presidents in years past had said the word Mormon is a good word. Well, the current president doesn't believe that. The current president believes every time a Mormon uses the word Mormon, it's a victory for Satan. That's how he phrased it. So they would like to be called Latter-day Saints, but for the sake of our interaction, I'm going to go back and forth between the two terms, as the vast majority of Mormons still do. They don't seem to take it as seriously as the president does. Uh, but I'll give you a concise definition. A Latter-day Saint or a Mormon is someone who believes that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, and that he was used by God to restore the gospel on earth through his translation of the Book of Mormon. That is a just a very bare-bones, basic definition. Uh, if you're looking at what makes a Mormon a Mormon, that's it. And I want you to notice the word restore in that definition. We are all here products of the Reformation. There's a difference between the word reform and the word restore. There's a big difference between seeking to reform something and to restore something. Uh, a reformation is different than a restoration. In the reformation, there was some sort of recognition that the shell was good, we just need to reform the inner parts. 
In a restoration, it's saying something totally new needs to replace what exists. And that's what Mormonism teaches, that the gospel that has existed on the earth, the gospel that has been saving souls, the message has been saving souls since the time of Jesus Christ, needs to be totally replaced with a restored gospel. That's the premise for Mormonism. That's why Mormonism exists, is to uh, bring about something totally new, totally different. Not a reformation, but a restoration. And the basic timeline of, of how this happened, if you uh, know a little bit about the life of Joseph Smith, some of these things will be familiar to you, but Joseph Smith was born in either 1804 or 1805. But in the spring of 1820, when he was 15 years old, he had the first vision, is what Mormons call this. It's when Joseph had been praying about which church to join because he was around Presbyterians and Methodists and some other denominations, and he didn't know which church to join. And he was praying about it, and he went out into the woods to pray one day, and he saw two personages. And in the Mormon paintings of this and in their statues, the two personages are identical. They look like twin old guys. Uh, they've got long white hair and long white beards, and there they are. And he saw these two personages, which he says is Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And they told him that he shouldn't join any church, that they were all corrupt. This is the restoration aspect. All the denominations had gone astray. They were all corrupt, and there needed to be a new gospel uh, presented on the face of the earth, uh, new in the sense that it had been there and then it was lost, so it needed to come back as a new message. He had that first vision in 1820. <clears throat> in 1827, he found the gold plates. Uh, I didn't have enough room on here to put everything I wanted to put on the timeline, but in 1823, Joseph was visited by the angel Moroni. Uh, now, when I say angel, you start thinking one thing as a Christian, hopefully, a, a biblical idea of what an angel is. To the Latter-day Saint, an angel is a dead, dead person who comes back as a spirit. That's what an angel is. Moroni, they teach, was an actual guy who lived. And we're going to talk about Moroni here in a moment. But he was a guy who lived on earth, and he had died, and his ghost, essentially, came back, the angel Moroni. And in 1823, he came and appeared to Joseph and told him that Joseph would be used to restore the gospel through an ancient record that was written on gold plates and put in the ground. So uh, Joseph knew this from 1823 at the age of 18, that he would be the guy for this. But it wasn't until 1827 that he actually discovered the gold plates, or so the story goes. Actually, every year from 1823 to 1827, he said he would go out and have an uh, interview, is what the word he used, an interview with Moroni. And Moroni would educate him each of those years until he finally revealed where the plates were in 1827. So he finds the gold plates, and then he translates the gold plates. And this is where the Book of Mormon comes from. He dug up these, these plates. He lifted them out of the ground. They were written in a language called Reformed Egyptian, which uh, is a language that doesn't exist. You, you can't find a reference to that language anywhere else in world history. It's never existed. But he said it was written in, in Reformed Egyptian, and he used two stones, the uh, Urim and the Thummim, and he put them in a hat, and he put the plate in the hat, and he could see what it said in English. And he dictated those to his friend who wrote down the Book of Mormon in English. And it was first published in 1830. Then throughout the 1830s, uh, Joseph started gaining a following, and they traveled from New York, where he was, he was living, Palmyra, New York. And they came down through Ohio, 
uh, Kirtland, Ohio in particular, before going across to Missouri, Independence and Liberty, Missouri, and then ending up in Illinois, Carthage and Nauvoo, Illinois, were the towns there. And that's when they really started gaining traction as a movement. Uh, the first temple was built in Kirtland, Ohio. So if you ever find yourself in the Kirtland area, you could go see the first ever Mormon temple. Uh, Joseph was imprisoned in Liberty. So you can go see the famed Liberty Jail, where Joseph spent time in jail. And if you ever go to Carthage, Illinois, that's where uh, Joseph was killed. He was uh, killed in Carthage in 1844, and that's when Brigham Young then stepped up to be the leader of the Mormon movement. And in 1847, the first Mormons arrived in Utah. So there's a really basic timeline of uh, the Mormon experience, Mormon history, and um, there's a lot more to it, but there's obviously not enough time to get into that tonight. I'm sure you know about polygamy, and I'm sure you know about some of the racist things that happened in their church, uh, but you can read all about that in, in various places. I also want to introduce you to their scriptures again. I, I know you've heard this before, but want to refresh your memory. They believe in the King James Bible as one of their scriptures. These are called the, the standard works. Uh, there are four books, and one of them is the King James Bible. I made a note there that the King James Bible is public domain, meaning no one has a copyright on it. That's important to recognize. You might also know that there are other movements that only use the King James Bible, uh, and a lot of them do it because it's public domain, meaning they don't have to get permission from a publisher to use it in their app, to reprint it in any of their books, anything like that. A lot of cults, a lot of uh, wayward movements will use the King James Version because they don't have to get permission from a Christian publisher to use it. Uh, if the Mormon church, for instance, wanted to use the NIV, they would have to get permission from, I think it's Zondervan, who has the rights to the NIV. And Zondervan would never do that. So they're stuck with the King James, uh, though they don't phrase it that way. But that's really what's going on. The second uh, standard work, of course, is the Book of Mormon. They also have the book Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And the Pearl of Great Price adds some interesting uh, stories to Genesis about the lives of Abraham and Moses. The Pearl of Great Price also has Joseph Smith's own spin on some of Jesus' parables. And in the Pearl of Great Price, you'll find their Articles of Faith, 13 statements that are supposed to succinctly define the Mormon religion. But it's important to recognize that to the Mormon, the greatest of these four books is the Book of Mormon. And I'm giving you a, a little analogy here, and I want you to remember this. For them, the Book of Mormon is like your favorite dish at your favorite restaurant. Uh, they want you to come taste it. They want you to, to read the Book of Mormon. If you ever interact with any Mormon missionaries, the first thing they'll want you to do is crack open the Book of Mormon and get a taste. So that way you can see how good the restaurant really is and We'll come back to that analogy in a little bit. But if we were to answer the question, what is the Book of Mormon? We could even use the definition given from the official Mormon website, lds.org. The Book of Mormon, this is what it says on their website. The Book of Mormon records the, or I think I may have skipped one there. There we go. The Book of Mormon is an abridgment by an ancient prophet named Mormon. So Mormon is a person's name. You might not know that. A guy named Mormon, he recorded uh, the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. The Book of Mormon is a religious record of three groups of people who migrated from the old world to the American continents. So there's one group that 
left for the Americas around the time of the Tower of Babel, uh, which was around 2200 B.C., they say. And then another two groups that came to the Americas in around 600 B.C. Uh, these all have interesting names, and you don't need to hear those or memorize those because they're goofy and they, they're made up. Uh, the Book of Mormon is, uh, here we go. The Book of Mormon records the visit of Jesus Christ to his people, or two people in the Americas following his resurrection. Moroni, who's the son of Mormon, he was the last of the Nephite prophet historians, and he sealed up the abridged records of these people and hid them in about uh, 421 AD. So there was a man named Mormon who was a Nephite. You've heard this story before, right? <laughs> a man named Mormon who was a Nephite, and he kept a record of the ancient people of the Americas, and he kept those, that record on gold plates. Then his son, Moroni, came along, and he added just a few things, and Moroni sealed up the record of the ancient people of the Americas, and he's the one who buried that record in the ground. And Moroni, if you remember, is the one who came back as a ghost or as an angel and visited Joseph and told him where he buried those plates. So that's the basic idea of the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's about these three people groups that left the Middle East, the Old World, and came to North America uh, and settled here. And then, of course, they believe that Jesus came to the Americas after his resurrection to visit those people. By definition, Latter-day Saints have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, meaning they, they know it's true. They bear witness to it. They have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, and their entire religious identification hinges on what they do with this book. If they have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, then they are, by definition, Mormons. And if they don't, or if they lose their testimony, is the way they phrase it, then they are no longer considered Latter-day Saints or Mormons. So what I want to talk to you about is how to evangelize this group. How do you have, how do you engage in a gospel conversation with Mormons or Latter-day Saints? Uh, the first thing you need to know that you have to come to grips with is that they're all unique. It's not a monolith out there, but uh, Latter-day Saints are quite unique. And it, the way you go about your conversation will depend on the Latter-day Saint you're talking to. So if you were asked, how do I evangelize Kansans? Well, that answer is going to vary. If you are going into some of the scary parts of KCK, that's going to be a different conversation than if you are going to the really fancy neighborhoods of Overland Park, right? Or if you're talking to one of your neighbors in Copeland, for instance. Those are going to be very different uh, approaches because those are very different people, and not all Kansans are the same. And just as many people will say that Kansans are the same or think that Kansans are all the same, many people think that all Mormons are the same, and that's just not the case. They actually have a great diversity of belief uh, among them. And we have to remember that the unity we might perceive within the Mormon religion is actually uniformity. We have unity as Christians because we have the same gospel message that imparts to us through faith the same Holy Spirit. That last verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the, the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us, and uh, that's true unity. No other group has true spiritual unity. 
what they have is merely external. It's uniformity. They can all dress the same. They can all look the same. They can all uh, abstain from the same foods or, or say the same phrases together. That's all external. It's not true unity. And when you engage in conversation with a Latter-day Saint, you have to remember that that this person really isn't a part of true spiritual unity with other people. This person has just been told to act certain ways and to say certain things and to live in a certain manner. So uh, what I want to address tonight, what I want to lay out for you tonight, is four things that they all believe. So if, if they're such a diverse group, well, what are some things that they all would agree on? And I've come up with four things that I want to share with you. And then tomorrow morning, I'll walk through the biblical response to each of these four things that I believe they all believe. Um, so the first thing I want to, to bring up, of course, is that they believe the Book of Mormon's true. I already mentioned they have to have a testimony of the Book of Mormon to be considered Mormon. It's the basis of all Mormon worldviews is the Book of Mormon is true. That's where it all starts. But it doesn't just stay with the Book of Mormon usually. The Book of Mormon is the first step in a long list of doctrines. In fact, there are many people who will be in a conversation with Mormon missionaries, and they'll read the Book of Mormon and say, okay, that's interesting. That might be, that might be true. And they'll kind of start going along through the process with the missionaries. And then it's not until maybe Lesson 8 or Lesson 9 or 10 that they find out that Mormons are actually polytheists. They believe that multiple gods exist because you don't find that doctrine in the Book of Mormon. It's not in there. It's not until Lesson 12 or 15 that you find out that they believe families and marriage in particular is eternal, that you are sealed in a temple and you are eternally wed to your spouse. That's not in the Book of Mormon. There are several things that come up down the road that aren't in that initial step of reading the Book of Mormon. So the things that follow, of course, are their extra scriptures, not just the Book of Mormon, but Doctrine and Covenants, where a lot of their doctrine is laid out, and the Pearl of Great Price, and also their living prophets. They believe that the president of the church is God's appointed mouthpiece on the earth today. So not just this prophet, but all the prophets that came before him spoke from God, and they're adding to doctrine every time they speak. They're adding to Scripture every time they speak. So you get not just the Book of Mormon, but you get the other Scriptures and the things that the prophets have taught. You also get their big pre-existence worldview. They believe that we were all up in heaven before earth hanging out with Jesus. They believe that all of us were born spiritually up there as little globs of intelligence is what they call it. We were all little intelligences, and we interacted with one another. We had interactions with our family up there, and we all took part in a great battle up there when Satan wanted to be the savior of this new planet, but Jesus also wanted to be the savior of the new planet. We took sides. Do you remember that? <laughs> we took sides, and some of us took Satan's side, some of us took Jesus' side, and some of us were neutral, and they have a full worldview based on that. Um, Pretty wild stuff, and that's a, a major part of their worldview. They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the inerrancy of Scripture. They deny human depravity. All of that comes with believing the Book of Mormon's true. It's just this slope where you start falling into all of these things. And then, of course, they teach very strictly that everybody should tithe. 
that you should be temple worthy and go visit the temple and go do baptisms for, for the dead people. Uh, they believe that you should have a calling in a local church. They don't call them local churches, but as you go to the ward and you attend the ward there, you should receive a calling from your bishop and fulfill your calling by serving in whatever way he tells you to serve, that men should hold the priesthood. They believe that men today can hold the Melchizedek priesthood, which is uh, a frightening heresy. Uh, the Melchizedek priesthood, of course, is for Jesus alone. Uh, but they believe that men can make themselves worthy to hold that priesthood. And if you're a young man or a young woman, you're encouraged to go on a mission. Uh, all of these things come with that first step of believing the Book of Mormon is true. And so uh, when you approach these things, you need to recognize there's a lot to Mormonism, but it's not very deep. Okay, A, a whole... A uh, big lake comes with uh, this Book of Mormon as you go down the slope of all their teachings. It's a mile wide, but it really is just an inch deep. Uh, there's so many little things that make up Mormonism, uh, but you don't need to know a whole lot about it. You just need to know that there are a lot of uh, denials of truth, and there's a lot of additions of lies in, in that religion. So they all believe the Book of Mormon is true. A second thing that they believe is that you, as a Christian, come from a long line of broken churches and faulty theology. Remember, uh, Mormonism is a restoration of the gospel. Something needed to be completely restored. And your gospel that you preach isn't the right one in their view. You come from a long line of bad theology and broken churches. And this has to do with mainly their preconceived notions. Mormons hold to the presupposition that there should only be a universal church, not diverse local churches. Uh, what, I, what I mean by those terms, universal and local, we recognize that uh, this church here, Morningside Community Church, you guys aren't the only ones going to heaven, right? I hope we recognize that. <laughs> uh, there are even some Presbyterians that might squeak in there, but... Uh, uh, you're not the only ones who will be in, in heaven one day. There is this big capital C church throughout the world where God has redeemed people of every tribe, tongue, and, and nation, and he's added them to his family. He's adopted them through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we consider that to be the universal church, meaning all redeemed people everywhere. Yet we do recognize that a church like this is a local church that's distinct from other local churches. We will differ on some areas of secondary doctrine. Uh, we will have some quirks about us here and there that make us different than other places. And there's diversity within God's family. And that's a good thing, that we're not all uniformly the same, but that we're different. In the Mormon church, they don't see that distinction. What they see in all of their, again, they don't use this term, but local churches, all their wards, what they see is uniformity based on the universal church idea that there is only one true church. Therefore, every outpost must look the same, act the same, talk the same. Uh, there is no diversity within this because there's no freedom at that local level. Uh, they believe that if a church is going to be true, they're all going to look the same, and they won't have any disagreements. Now, that's very different from us, right? We believe that there's one true capital C church, Jesus's church that he's building. But we also believe that there's diversity within that church. They don't believe that. They don't teach that. And it really is a presupposition. I use that word intentionally. Uh, Joseph Smith taught this, that 
all churches should look the same as if it's God's church, there won't be any disagreement. Uh, he taught this, and that's been assumed by generations of Mormons up until our present day. And so if someone is born into a Mormon family, they're born with this preconceived notion, this presupposition that your church can't be true because you disagree with the church down the road. Therefore, uh, you just can't be the true church. There would be a whole bunch of churches that look like yours, talk like yours, smell like yours. There would be complete uniformity, but instead uh, you're diverse. And that's a, a presupposition they hold to uh, firmly, that a true church will be cleanly organized. A true church will be uniform in every way. So when they look at church history through the lens of this presupposition, they look at church history, they see the disagreements and splits that have happened uh, all the way back, you know, pat, even before the Reformation, and they see all of this, they conclude that, well, no, none of those churches are true. Only our church is a true restored church. So uh, that's what's in their mind when they converse with you and when they, they think of you as a Christian, an evangelical Christian. And they don't just believe in broken churches, they believe our Bible's broken. There are 13 articles of faith. Uh, again, you know, those are found in the Pearl of Great Price. The eighth article of faith addresses the Bible. And what they say about the Bible is that the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. That's an interesting qualifier to put on that, isn't it? The Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And that qualifier does not exist for any of the LDS scriptures. Uh, so just to give you an idea, this eighth article of faith says the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. The next sentence in that article says, and we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. Period. It doesn't continue and say as far as it is translated correctly. It's only with the Bible that they make that qualifier. Therefore, Mormons hold to the presupposition that the Bible is a dubious book. You can't trust it. The Bible's uncertain. There have been translation errors. In fact, it's taught in their church that very plain and precious things have been taken out of the Bible through translation over the centuries, and you can't trust that book. Um, and I'm using that word presupposition intentionally again here. It's a preconceived notion. They are just born believing that because Joseph Smith taught it, and it's been assumed by every generation since. So they believe the Book of Mormon and other LDS scriptures, along with the Mormon prophets, come along as the answers to the questions that the Bible can't answer. The Bible's missing these plain and precious things. How can we learn these things that have been left out of the Bible? Well, you need the Book of Mormon. You need the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and everything else. So to sum it up, in their view, the Bible isn't sufficient for life and godliness. They look at church history and see and look at it and say, well, look, uh, if it was sufficient, there would be perfect uniformity throughout church history, but there's not. So therefore, the Bible must be faulty. The LDS scriptures and the LDS prophets can straighten you out. So uh, they're happy to give you their answers to those problems. The third thing that I believe they all believe is that we're all going to heaven. And that might seem kind of surprising. We're just talking about a group of people who say we have the wrong gospel. We're talking about a group of people who claim they're the one true church and we're not. Uh, usually in those groups, they say everyone else is going to hell. But in this group, the, the Latter-day Saints, they believe we are all actually going to heaven. And this 
uh, is a real big difference when it comes to our evangelistic conversations. You as a follower of Jesus, you want to have a conversation with someone like a Latter-day Saint because you recognize someone's soul is on the line. I hope you recognize that. Every soul will spend eternity somewhere. C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal, right? You, every soul is going to spend eternity somewhere. So heaven, hell, life, death, all on the line. But for the Mormon, the conversation is largely just a preference conversation. Which religion, which denomination do you prefer? Now, of course, they're going to hold to theirs is the one true religion. But if you don't want to be a part of that, it's okay. They're very quick to just say, that's fine. That's okay. It's just a matter of preference because hell is not on the line for the Mormon. That's, they don't believe you're going there. They think you're going to go to a really great place and, and it'll just be real sweet for you no matter what. Christians understand what's on the line, that people will go to heaven or hell. The Latter-day Saints believe that God gives us whatever we want. If you want to work for great glory in the afterlife, you can do it. You can earn it. But if you're okay with lesser glory, uh, maybe not the platinum edition, but just the you know diamond level, however that works, that's fine too. That's fine. Or the silver, that's, that's fine. That's okay. God will give you whatever you want, and that's okay, is what they believe. Uh, and how this plays out in the afterlife is they teach that Mormons go to the top kingdom called the celestial kingdom. They have three kingdoms of heaven, and the top one, the celestial kingdom, is for the faithful Mormons. You, as a Christian, a religious person, you're going to go to the terrestrial kingdom, the middle, middle kingdom. And everyone else, just about, uh, even the most wicked among us, and I think the clicker has stopped functioning. Is there a way to... Okay, now, now we're back. All others, even the most evil among us, so murderers, rapists, uh, you know, serial liars, those who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, wanted nothing to do with church, they still go to the bottom level kingdom of heaven. And when Joseph Smith described uh, this kingdom in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants, he basically said it's more glorious than in anything we could ever imagine, the bottom kingdom. So you can just be the, the scum of the earth, and it's a win-win for you. You're still going to go to heaven. Um, the only ones who go to any version of hell in their worldview are those who had a testimony of the Book of Mormon and then lost it. And the way it's phrased in their official doctrine is uh, those who have had the Father reveal the Son to them and then reject it. They go to outer darkness. Uh, they still don't believe in hell. They don't believe in fire. Uh, they just believe it's dark and there's gnashing of teeth and it's sad because you're on the outside looking in while everybody's having fun in one of the three kingdoms. Um, but they believe the only ones who go there are those who had tasted truly the religion and then decided to walk away, uh, which is a very common cult tactic, by the way. So you have to understand that many Latter-day Saints approach these conversations from a perspective of preference instead of life and death. So going back to the, uh, the restaurant analogy... The religion you pick is your restaurant, essentially. And uh, think of your favorite dish at your favorite restaurant. Okay? That's, that's your religion and that's your scripture. 
So the Mormon, they have their favorite restaurant. It's their religion, and they've got their dish. It's the Book of Mormon, and they want you to try their dish. They invite you to their restaurant and say, come on in. you got to try this place. You're going to love it. And you've had these conversations before with people, and, and I get this every time. It's the best thing. You just need to taste it. And they're hoping that when you taste that, you'll say, your favorite restaurant is now my favorite restaurant, and you'll join the club. But if you don't, and you want to stick to your restaurant, even though it's worse subjectively from their perspective, that's fine. That's fine. And God will let you eat there as much as you want for all eternity. That's their perspective on this. So their religion is like the best steakhouse you've ever been to. You can't beat it. You, they cook the steak just how you want it every time. Best cut of meat, all the sides you'd ever want. It's wonderful. And you know, maybe your religion is like Outback Steakhouse in their view, where, you know, hey, you're still going to get a steak, and, but, you know, there are a lot of them. It's a chain restaurant. It's not as good as ours, but it's fine. And, you know, that bottom kingdom, it's like the McRib at McDonald's. You know, it's, a, it's not Outback quality even, but, you know, it's food. And if, the, if you like it, that's what God will give you for all eternity. And uh, for those in outer darkness, well, they just have to starve, I guess. But that's essentially the way they view uh, what's at stake in this, in this conversation. So they believe the Book of Mormon's true. They believe that you as a Christian come from a long line of broken churches and faulty theology, yet they believe we're all going to heaven. Now, the fourth and final one I want to present to you this evening is one that they'll rarely openly admit, but this really is the biggie. This is the one that really changes the whole conversation. It's the one that sets up the whole dynamic. Um, but again, they'll rarely openly admit it. And it's that personal revelation and feeling override everything. Personal revelation, they believe they hear directly from God, and that God gives them specific feelings, that overrides everything else. No matter how much evidence you want to give them, no matter, no matter what you want to present to them, you cannot beat the fact that they believe God gave them a personal revelation of himself. Uh, it's really personal authority. Um, at the end of the day, in their view, we are all individually the ultimate arbiters of what is true. They believe that they alone are sovereign in determining what is true. They don't submit to the Holy Bible like we do. They don't start with God speaking to them through the written word as we start with. But they believe that God speaks directly to them in a supernatural way that no one can refute. And this comes from several of their scriptures, uh, but in particular, Doctrine and Covenants 9.8, and I'll put that, that verse up here. It's where we get the phrase burning in the bosom, and maybe you've heard that with Mormons. They get a burning in their bosom, and it's confirmation that what they believe is true. DNC 9.8 says, You must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. You shall feel that it is right. Their feelings are the arbiter of truth. That makes the conversation very difficult because you haven't felt what they've felt. You can't get inside their mind and cause them to think differently about their feelings. But that's where they are. At the end of the day, Mormons are Mormons because they believe God has revealed truth to them in a personal, supernatural way, and no one can reverse that experience. And that's really hard to argue with, isn't it? 
you, you just, you can't. It's like a, an out card for anything you present. You can present an airtight biblical case using every verse in context and building uh, your theology one verse upon another. And at the end of the day, if they said, well, God told me, or I felt this and I know it was God, what do you say? How do you address that? Um, well, there are ways to challenge that biblically, and you need to be able to do that with all people, not just Latter-day Saints, but with all people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the phrasing we get in Romans 1, isn't it? That people hear the Word of God, yet in unrighteousness they suppress it and they replace the truth with a lie, and they worship the idols of the earth instead of submitting to the one true God. And it is our job as Christ's ambassadors to confront those people with truth and to do it humbly and in love and the way Jesus did it. Uh, it's our role to do that. And so uh, we'll address this in the morning. We're actually going to start with this fourth one and work our way back up, uh, addressing the, the issues here on what all Latter-day Saints believe.